All right, turn, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Some time ago, we just started looking at discipleship. We are in the book of Acts now, trying to find out how the New Testament develops the theme of discipleship, what it is, who's a disciple, uh, what, is this, what do disciples do, how do disciples disciple, that kind of thing. We've previously looked at the definition and terminology of discipleship, strangely. Uh, discipleship is not non-biblical or anti-biblical, but it's not in the Bible. It's not a term the Bible uses. It uses the term disciple, but the idea of a discipleship is not there, at least the terminology. <clears throat> But the idea is there, and so if we're going to use this term discipleship, which is a good term, I've used it, uh, it's in our literature, um, what does it mean? That's the big question. And you go out there on the internet or talk to people and you find out discipleship means whatever someone intends it to mean. Um, it doesn't really have some well-known, agreed-upon definition. So <clears throat> we started looking at a tentative definition of discipleship. Discipleship is personally following Jesus. That's its core, someone who follows Jesus. We don't follow men, we don't follow other people. We don't have disciples ourselves. Christians don't, <clears throat> don't have disciples. They may do what folks think is discipleship is, but it's really just Christianity, one anothering and such. But whatever it is, its core meaning is you are personally following Jesus and you're not just following him for any old Reason, there are people who wanted to follow him, John chapter 6, because he gave them food in a, in a culture where food was scarce, hard to come by. But they wanted to make him king. They were going to follow him for all kinds of different reasons. And a discipleship, true biblical discipleship, means you are following Jesus as divine Messiah, as the only Savior of sinners and as the risen Lord. We're also to follow Jesus according to his word. It's not whatever we want to put into discipleship. It's according to his word. When someone becomes a Christian and the Holy Spirit comes into their hearts, the word of God becomes everything. The world thinks we're crazy. The world calls us a cult, etc., etc. But if you've been born of God, that word of God is, you love it because it's, it was pinned by the Holy Spirit himself. And it's how God works in our lives. According to his word, and in the dynamic of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a disciple doesn't just go on his own, his own gas tank, his own juice, his own energy. A follower of Jesus is someone who has the Holy Spirit, and that's what we'll be looking at today and the next few weeks. And a disciple, when we get into the New Testament, we find wherever they can, lives out their discipleship in the context of a body of believers. It's not a private enterprise. It's in the body of believers. So those are sort of the elements. We looked a bit at the significance, took a little bit of a little bus tour around the Gospels, and it was getting too long, so I'm like, okay, we're going to be doing the Gospels anyway. So uh, let's move on. But the passages we did look at, it was clear that discipleship, whatever it is, it's everything. Everything is at stake. If you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. If you're not a disciple, you're not on your way to heaven. Um, you're on your way to the judgment and wrath of God. Everything is at stake. And these are the words of Jesus himself. 
The liberal world tends to like to quote the words of Jesus. Of course, they want to be selective. They pick like 20 of his thousands of words because they, they fit their, those particular words happen to fit their viewpoint. But Jesus has a clear viewpoint. If you're not following him, you're not going to make it. Everything's at stake. Your life is at stake. Your soul is at stake. Your day of judgment is at stake, and your eternity is at stake. So discipleship, whatever it is, we need to be clear about it, and we need to be accurate about it, because everything's at stake. If it was just a sideshow, okay, we could be a little fuzzy. But when everything is at stake, we really need to know what it means, and we need to know what we mean by it. We've been looking now at the context starting in Acts. What is the context for discipleship? In what context or framework are disciples made? And do disciples disciple, whatever that, whatever that might mean. And along the way, because there's some really good stuff, you get into the scriptures and you're like, ah, I can't bypass that. You, know, you try to bypass as much as you can, stay on focus, but sometimes you just gotta smell the flowers. I, again, I kind of think about it this way. If, <clears throat> One of you ladies, if you have the job of picking up the flowers for a wedding, right? So you walk into the flower shop, and the flower shop's as big as this room, and way back there are the flowers you're supposed to pick up and bring to the wedding, and there's all these flowers along the way. Are you just going to go, nope, I'm just walking through, not looking to the left? Is that what you're going to do? Anybody? Anybody going to say that's what you're going to do? You're going to look at those flowers along the way, aren't you? So that's kind of what we're doing. We're going to get to the flowers in the back of the room, but uh, along the way, we're going to check some things out. And we started with the Great Commission. If discipleship, uh, you know, is this important? And the Great Commission, as we've seen, is to make disciples. Well, so just what is in that Great Commission? And as we looked at the four passages where the Great Commission is basically presented to us, <clears throat> the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the inauguration of worldwide gospel preaching, and what are we supposed to do when we do that Well, we saw that this Great Commission is just fraught with Old Testament fulfillment. Uh, Last chapter 24 of Luke is just one of those places where Jesus took the disciples through a a grand tour of the Old Testament and showed that uh, the fulfillment was going to be his death, his resurrection, and uh, bringing the gospel to the nations. It's part of this Old Testament fulfillment. There's been a hundred plus years of a doctrine called dispensationalism, which many of you were probably taught. Um, And one of the core, I don't know, errors of that doctrine is it tries to say that, no, the the Great Commission's one thing, but then there's all the stuff that's going to happen with Israel. Just a total distraction, unbiblical. The fulfillment of the Old Testament is the gospel going to the nations. Has to do with a messianic reign. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. On that basis, go. We have to recognize where Jesus is before we can go with confidence. Um, It's a messianic reign as part of this great commission, part of its foundation. It's fulfillment of the Old Testament. God's in it. God's behind it. God's doing it. It's God's work. And, And he's doing it because he's raised his son from the dead and put him in his right hand. There's global proclamation. We go anywhere and everywhere. Sometimes God says, okay, you need to go to Zambia or you need to go somewhere else. Others is like, I'll talk to anybody. (laughs) Put me anywhere with anybody and I'm 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 gonna give the gospel to them. Now the apostle Paul got led and sometimes he was told not to go somewhere because God had other plans later. And 
And, but wherever Paul went, he was, he was preaching that gospel. And the purpose of preaching the gospel is conversion. To have unbelievers, people who are just lost in sin, whether they're flying high because they're, they're enjoying the world to the best the world has to offer, or whether they realize they're just broken sinners. Conversion of those people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. That's the mission. Make disciples. Make people followers of Jesus. And we're to baptize them. And we're to teach them. And this whole operation, this whole enterprise is based on and energized by the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus kept saying, you tarry. I'm telling you, you're going to be doing this, but you wait till you get the Holy Spirit. All gospel preaching is a Holy Spirit enterprise, all of it. So we started looking at the book of Acts. We saw the event in the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit coming down, that grand fulfillment, um, the day of Pentecost, it's talked about all over in the Old Testament. And uh, anyway, we considered the event. And when you get the event happens, the Holy Spirit falls, there's flames of fire, and then there's people, all these people who are at Jerusalem because it was a holiday, they have Pentecost. And they all started, some, some who had the Holy Spirit started speaking in the language of others. It wasn't speaking in an unknown tongue of 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, but it was language that others could understand. It's prophecy, so we looked at that. <clears throat> and people were amazed. And this, Acts chapter 2, 12 and 13, is the third time, I believe, where Luke records that the people were amazed at what had happened, that they were perplexed. Like, why would this happen? I mean, this is a big deal event, and everybody was just going, oh, I know what that is, you know. They're all going, no, we're not really sure what this is because they weren't tying the Old Testament to it at that point. They were perplexed. And the crowd was audibly expressing the question, saying one to another, what does this mean? The question that Peter is going to stand up and answer. So you all that are gonna go door to door, wouldn't you just love that, that question? Well, tell me about Jesus. What is this salvation? Let's sit down and talk for an hour. I mean, you go, yeah, I'm coming in. But uh, usually that's not how it works. Usually you get this. Others are mocking and saying, ah, they're just full of sweet wine. Per usual, when God is at work, there will always be raw skeptics and mockers. Instead of being amazed and humbled at the mighty works of God, they express a brazen, sneering, ridicule or something like that. It's an arrogant attitude. It's a contemptuous attitude and it characterizes the new atheism and it characterizes the growing secularism of our country. Contempt for God, contempt for truth. No recognition that we live and breathe and, and have, our, have our being in God. A refusal to recognize that. So one group was amazed. One group was like, gosh, tell me more about this. What does this mean? I want to understand it. But then there's a group that just you know, writes it off to some natural process. They're full of sweet wine. Don't be moved by their unfounded self-confidence. When you go to door to door, don't be unmoved by it, or rather moved by it. Don't go, oh, well, you know, they're, 
they're really strong in this, just go, okay, I got more work cut out for me, that's all. It's an unfounded self-confidence. Always be ready to give an answer about Jesus and to give your testimony. Well, today we're going to start in Peter's message. Begins in verse 14. It's important to understand that this is the first message ever preached post-resurrection. Now, Peter had said some things before about, you know, replacing Judas. But this is now what we might call a sermon. I'm going to call it a message, a, a presentation, a declaration, a proclamation. This is the first one after Jesus went to heaven. First one. And so it's instructive. Now, his audience are Jews, and so he's going to appeal to the Old Testament, and they're going to get it. They have the authority of the Bible in mind, and so when you start bringing up the Old Testament, people generally are going to start to listen because they believe that Old Testament was written by God. They believe it was going to have a fulfillment, that God was behind its promises, its prophecies, and God was going to bring it to pass. So Peter grounds his message very, very centrally, very significantly in the scriptures. If you're talking to someone who doesn't understand the Bible or know the Bible, you might ground things differently. But we have here Peter speaking to people about this event that's just happening in their midst and what it means. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord to help us with this. Loving Father, we come before your throne. It's a majestic throne. It's a throne that spans the universe and beyond. Lord God, we are your saints here this morning, and we just look to you to speak to us, to encourage us, to uh, clarify things for us, to, Lord, even where necessary, reprove us. We need these things. Lord Jesus, you are our shepherd, and part of the way that you shepherd us is through your holy scriptures. And so, Lord, as we look at this passage, <clears throat> as Peter looks back to the prophet Joel in your book, Lord, we just pray that you would fill our hearts. I can't do that. I, I can't take the glory of this and go around and, and pour it into people's brains or souls or anything. Only you can. And Lord, that's what I ask that you would do. Because these are spiritual realities and they're spiritually discerned and they're spiritually appreciated and spiritually loved. And so Lord, just pray you would take uh, what we're going to look at this morning for many, it may be something new. It may be a new paradigm, a new way of thinking. Lord, just give us all humility to be before your word and not, not, not worry about what others think or whether others have said, no matter how significant or insignificant they may be. Lord, your holy scriptures are the only authority that there is, the only place we can go for truth, the only place we can go for clarity. And Lord, we just want to trust those scriptures. We want to take our hand and put it in your hand and let you lead us. Lord, renew our minds this morning and even more, renew our hearts. Let us see the glory of what Joel is talking about and, and Peter explains and applies. Lord, we thank you for these scriptures. <clears throat> we look at all the confusion out there when we have them. What would it be like if we didn't? And uh, so, Lord, just we thank you for them and pray you would bless this morning. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Now here's an event. <clears throat> event has just happened. Remember, that's the background. There's amazement. There's perplexity. There's even mocking. 
Just remember that's it. So Peter, in the midst of this crowd, in the midst of all the talk, probably there's loudness. People are chattering. People are ignoring. Some of the teenagers are there wishing they could be somewhere else. All those kinds of things going on. It's, it's a crowd. A crowd's a <laughs> finicky bunch, and it's a mixed, a mixed bunch. And so Peter takes his stand with the 11, and he raises his voice, and he declares to them. He stands and speaks. He speaks with a clear voice above the crowds. He's trying to get the crowds, because they're all chattering, talking with one another, asking questions, and trying to get them to calm down so that they, as a group, can pay attention. He raises his voice and he declares to them. And Peter is going to reason from the scriptures. He's not going to give his philosophy. He's not going to give a philosophical evaluation of things. He's not going to go to tradition and give a traditional value of things. He's not going to go to the Pharisee <clears throat> theological construct group and say, okay, what does this mean? He's going to reason himself from the scripture. He's going to reason from a position of confidence and certainty. He's not going to say, well, I suggest an explanation. You could have this one. But, you know, Ralph over here, he has that explanation. You might consider that one. Or, you know, gosh, you know, Thaddeus, he, he might have one. You, you should probably look at that too. That's not what Peter does. He reasons from the scripture. He reasons confidently and he reasons with certainty. He had just been with Jesus. He didn't go to Bible school. He, he heard from Jesus. And one of the problems with American Christianity that to me is just, it's always a problem it's like governments. You know, you start a government, great, you have a leader, and before you know it, you got this big bureaucracy, and before you know that, the bureaucracy's really running the show. And the leader who thinks he's a leader, and the people who thinks the leader's a leader, he's not the leader. He's just kind of stuck with this bureaucracy. Always happens. Happens in Egypt, you read about it. it happens in every, every uh, I don't know, government enterprise, if you will. It's happening in America. And it's happening in the church. Now, bureaucracies aren't bad. They can just take on more than they're supposed to. Take on more authority than they're supposed to have. So seminaries and such are good things. They will train men, but they can take on more than they're supposed to in people's minds. Peter had been with Jesus. Peter had heard from Jesus. Peter had Jesus take the Old Testament and open it up to him, and that's what he was going to proclaim. He's not going to give Theobabel. He's not going to get into philosophical discussion and debate. He is going to proclaim and declare the gospel of God. He's going to proclaim from the only authority they had at that point, the Old Testament. There was no other authority. There was no New Testament. And it's not neutral dialogue. If someone thinks that a preacher is supposed to have sort of neutral dialogue, sort of an appeasement thing, well, that's what false prophets do. That's not what true prophets do. Preachers preach. Preachers proclaim. True preachers declare.
Even when you're going door to door, the gospel is an act of declaration and proclamation. You're not there to dialogue and debate with someone. Perhaps you need to help them through all the foolishness of modern science that's tried to replace God at every, at every point. Maybe there might be some social justice issues you have to talk about to try to get your, your audience, in this case it'll be an audience of one or two, to try to sort of take away those big, huge roadblocks that Satan puts in people's minds. But when it comes to the gospel, you're not there to debate. You're there to proclaim. Now to proclaim doesn't mean that you're going to be mean or doesn't mean that you're going to be loud. It doesn't mean that you're going to be obnoxious. It does mean that you're going to state the case of the gospel. This is God's gospel. This isn't your gospel. This is the gospel of the God who made the universe, who made this earth, who gives to everyone life and breath and all things. And we speak with conviction, we speak with assurance, we speak with a sure hope. We know him who we believe. Now we might be nervous, we might be timid in our personalities and things, but in the end, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. And it's God's gospel. Fellow sort of an unknown writer named Philip Morrow and I, He's got two little books on the first half of the book of Romans, and I, uh, I love the title of the books. The, the, the book one is called God's Gospel and God's Righteousness. The other one's God's Gospel and Man's Response. It's God's Gospel. We reason, we persuade, but it's God's Gospel. He raises his voice. He declares to them. He says, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Now, preachers don't become mean. They don't put aside human reality and that we live in a social order and that we're all in this together and we have common things that we agree on and common means of discourse and things like that. We don't put that aside. We don't become rude. But we are confident. We are clear. But Peter says, hey, folks, listen to me. Let's have friends, Romans, countrymen, give me your ears. Let this be known unto you. Give heed to my words. Listen to me for a bit. Some of you are saying that they're drunk with sweet wine. That's going around the crowd. People are hearing it. Now, a lot of people don't believe it. But some are maybe going, oh, maybe they are drunk. And Peter says, okay, I've got I to dispatch this little annoying attempt to undermine what's going on here. So he just says it outright. Everybody's talking about it. He's hearing the whispers. For these men are not drunk, as some of you are supposing. This isn't some natural process, as some of you are supposing. Because it's only the third hour of the day. It's about 9 a.m. Normally, people aren't out there drinking wine at 9 a.m. Normally it's in the evening when they're getting a little tipsy and ready to go to bed. So Peter uses some reason. This is not a reasonable thing to assume that this is the result of a whole pile of people, 120 plus perhaps, a whole pile of people being drunk at the same time. That's not a reasonable assessment. 
Well, that's what you'll find. Many objections to the gospel really aren't reasonable. They're just any objection someone can muster to convince themselves or others that this gospel is not true. And we have to answer some of those things. We have to answer evolution. We have to answer the age of the earth. We have to answer the pseudo-authority of modern science. We have to answer social justice. We have to answer some of these things at times. Now, if you don't feel like you have the skill sets to answer those things, that's okay. The gospel is still its own authority and its own power. You don't have to worry about it. But some of you have that ability, and you're going to find yourself... Hey, these aren't drunken as you suppose. You know, evolution doesn't cut it, will not produce a thing. Evolution is a mathematical impossibility. You may have to go there. So this is not your skepticism at work, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. What has happened here in your midst, what you've seen with your own eyes, what still may be winding down at this point, This is a fulfillment of the Holy Scriptures. This is not something based on worldly processes. It's a fulfillment of Joel. Notice Peter's regard for the prophets. Whatever Joel did, he may have spoken or he may have written, but it's an equivalent of communication. Whatever is written in that Old Testament, by the way. And remember, the Old Testament doesn't record everything that was ever said by prophets or everything that ever happened in the history of redemption. It is highly selective and gives you just the summary or the perspectives or the details or the, he, God captures for us the things that he says are enduring and are important for future generations to know and to understand. So God's always been speaking as to this day. But what's in the scriptures is what is our authority. And what a prophet wrote or a prophet spoke and someone recorded it, however it was put down and for transmission to the next generations to come, it is God speaking. What was spoken through the prophet Joel, not by, but through. Now, for my purposes, some of the translations would read, but this is that which is spoken, not this is what. And I'm going to prefer this one, and you'll see why in a minute. Remember again, what Peter is saying here is he's giving us a principle on how to interpret the Bible. This is how you interpret the Scriptures. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This thing which you're experiencing now, this thing which you see and you hear that's perplexing, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is how you interpret the Old Testament. We have to interpret the Old Testament in the light of its fulfillment in the coming of Jesus as Messiah. We have to interpret the Old Testament in the light of its fulfillment of the coming of the Holy Spirit, which these people had just experienced. Again, this is the first message ever preached after the resurrection. And the first point of Peter's sermon is understand how to interpret the Bible. 
Isn't that interesting? One of the reasons he starts here and says you need to know that this is that, that that's how you interpret the Bible, is because he's going to bring up several more passages of Scripture that are key and core to his message. And so if you don't know how to interpret the Bible, if you don't know how to go back into the Old Testament and see how it's fulfilled in the New, then you're going to be very confused and you're going to be confused with his message because that's what he does. And this principle of this is that is how to interpret the whole Bible. You can't go into the Old Testament and come up with your own interpretation. The Old Testament is heading somewhere, but ultimately where it lands is where it was going, which means that's what it was talking about. See, if I get in my car and drive out of the, out of the driveway out here, someone might think, well, where's Steve going? Because he can go to a lot of places. He seemed to be heading, you know, where usually people head south. Not sure where he's going. He may stop at a restaurant. He may stop at the grocery store. But if you drive by my house and see my cars there, then you go, well, that's where Steve was going. You can rule out Publix, you can rule out the grocery store, you can rule out a restaurant because he was going home. This, where Steve's car is, is that which he was doing when he got in and drove. We interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament. Some will say, well, everybody knows that. I'm like, no, everybody doesn't know that. I've had people say that if you believe that, that the Old Testament must be interpreted only by the new, then you're from Satan. I mean, they, they could, no, one, no one was questioning where that person was going with their opinion. Dispensationalism is based on interpreting the New Testament by the old. A lot of people don't understand that, but they will actually tell you that. I've read books on on progressive dispensationalism, and they will say in there, okay, we've had to get rid of a lot of baggage of crazy things that dispensationalism used to say, but there's one thing we won't relinquish. We will always maintain the locus of our interpretation in the Old Testament. They say that's what they're doing. It's not Steve picking on them. It's not a deduction. They say this is their method of interpretation. We interpret the New Testament by the Old. And that's what Peter says, no, that's not how you understand things. That's not how you deal with things. You interpret the Old Testament by the New. This is that. Now sort of make a visual picture of it. This is that, Acts 2.16. This is a method of interpretation. Jesus and the apostles, all of them, from the first verse in Matthew to the last verse in the book of Revelation, are reaching into that Old Testament and showing its fulfillment in Jesus. They never reach and show its fulfillment in some other place, ever, not ever. Someone say, well, that's an argument from silence. I'm like, no, it's not. It's an argument from Revelation. Jesus and the apostles knew what the Old Testament was about. 
and they show you how to truly read it and how to ground this New Testament in Old Testament prophecy. It's been interesting. I've been uh, sort of came across a YouTube that basically said, I'm not saying it's true, but you might want to go out and check it out, that Muhammad never existed, that he was an invention. I thought, ooh, what a radical statement. But as they went through and started showing things, there's a lot of things that these guys knew their stuff when it came to Islam and the Quran and such. But what was interesting, there's no Old Testament prophecy for the coming of Muhammad. Do you know of any? They do not have 4,000 years of prophecy, 4,000 years of promise, 4,000 years of type and shadow and imagery and symbol. This massive testimony to the coming of Jesus Christ, what he will accomplish, what he will do, where he will go into heaven, and how the gospel will go to all nations, and that will, everything will end up in a new heavens and a new earth. Hinduism does not have that. Buddhism does not have that. Islam does not have that. Only the gospel has that. This is that. The New Testament is built on the old. So when Bart Ehrman comes and says, oh, well, you know, there's these lost Christianities, and, well, you know, the, the, the new, in the New Testament, the early disciples, Jesus was a good man, and sort of by the game of telephone, things kind of grew, and the stories kind of grew, and they ended up becoming, in their minds, the Son of God. So, nice try, Bart, but guess what? The New Testament writers don't play the game of telephone. They expound the Old Testament scriptures that were there thousands of years before. No such thing as the game of telephone. No such thing as Jesus sort of morphing into the Son of God. I've said it before. It's always been, I don't know, sort of funny and yet powerful to me. Bart Ehrman wrote a book called How Jesus Became God to present his, his crazy ideas that have no grounding in anything other than Bart Ehrman's mind. How Jesus became God, how he went from being a nice guy to, to God in the early church. And another brother named Bird, I forget his first name, Michael Bird, wrote a book to respond to it called How God Became Jesus. And that is what Peter is saying. You read the New Testament, not only in the light and the old, but as the fulfillment of the old. This is that. So this day of Pentecost is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is that. And notice the direction of interpretation. It's important to nail it down. We go from the New Testament back to understand the Old. And again, there's a whole ton of people out there presenting what they say is Christian truth that do it in the opposite. We read the Bible chronologically forward and we interpret it backward. But there are some, alas, some that say that is this, they reverse it. Covenant theology, strange bedfellows, covenant theology and dispensationalism are just about as opposite and as extreme you could get in their, in their conclusions on the history of redemption. That's one area. They all believe in Jesus. It's the Son of God, things like that. They're not non-Christian. 
but in some of the bigger ideas trying to you know, stitch the Bible together from end to end. Strangely, covenant theology does the same thing. It interprets the New Testament by the Old. Not in everything, but in the things that matter to their theology. Dispensationalism does it. Progressive covenantalism does it. I remember when we were going to the New Covenant theology conferences, went to several of them, and we kept trying to tell the guys, guys, you got to nail this down. You got you to write something. You need to get a confessional statement. They're like, no, no, that's, you know, we don't, we don't do that. Not everybody was saying that, but the people we talked to. And we kept thinking, you know, if you don't do that, sooner or later some scholars are going to get a hold of this because there are a lot of good things in New Covenant theology, they're going to get hold of those things, but they're going to recast them in their own framework, and you're not going to like it. And sure enough, that's what happened. Some of the professors at Southern Seminary, who some of them were coming to the conference, got a hold of it, went back, and rewrote New Covenant theology in the paradigm of covenant theology and they called it progressive covenantalism. A lot of good things in the things they say, a big improvement over covenant theology itself. Some of them had dispensational backgrounds, so it was a big, you know, it was big for them personally. But it was just sad to watch because they do the same thing. We're gonna roll through the Old Testament and get this momentum and then finally with all of our conclusions we've been developing in their 500, 600 page book, we're gonna roll forward until we get to the New Testament and then we're gonna show how the New Testament fits our paradigm. They're gonna take their Old Testament conclusions and impose them on the new. Some of you, this may go over your head and it's probably good. (laughs) I wish I wasn't didn't know about it, but postmillennial theonomy does the same thing, taking a bunch of Old Testament case law and things like that and trying to impose them onto the New Testament as the mission of the church to bring this theocratic kingdom to the nations instead of the gospel. Christian nationalism does the same thing. It keeps reaching into the Old Testament to justify itself. Their hermeneutic is that is this, and it's just destructive of true Christian doctrine. So please nix that. This is that, is how we interpret the Bible. Now before we can go forward, just a, a little thing here to understand is that the Bible, when it looks at itself, and yes, the Bible looks at itself, the Bible actually interprets itself. The Bible is always looking back, whether it's looking back a few years, whether it's looking back a few decades, a few centuries, or millennia. The Bible reflects on itself often. You don't have to wonder, well, what is he saying there? If you, if you read you know, further in the history of the revelation of God, you'll start to see God reaches back and gives it more detail and explanation. But he does so by the structure of what we might call eras. There's several eras in the Bible. Now, an era is a long and distinct period of history. 
that has particular features and characteristics. If you were to go back in the era, let's say, of the 1700s, where you had a lot going on, a lot of revolution, a lot of new ideas, a lot of new thinking as a result of the Enlightenment, you would say there were characteristics of that era. People thought this way. People were concerned about these issues. They had this technology and that kind of thing. But then you get into the modern age, or the, we might say the more modern age. It's all considered modern in one sense. In the era of the Industrial Revolution. That's a whole different world of thinking, a whole different world of activity, a whole different world of perspective that people gained because manufacturing took on this mechanistic, uh, repeatable process characteristic, which is a good thing. As good things go, they're always used for bad, but it was a good thing in itself. So these eras of history have their own features and characteristics. And that's how it is with the Bible. It has eras. There's a Greek word called oikonomia. You can sort of hear the term economy, and economy does kind of come from it. Economy from a certain point of view. And oikonomia comes from a Greek word oikos, and I believe namos, not sure about that, but it makes sense. It's the rules and regs by which you maintain the affairs of a household. So it's the house oikos and namos, laws, house laws. But the oikonomia, this word in the Greek, meant the administration or management of the affairs of a household, or bigger, a region, a state, even an empire, or it's how affairs are managed in a certain period of time, in an era. Now many of you are probably familiar with Ephesians 1.10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of times or in the newer translations in the administration of the fullness of times. That's that word, economia. What Paul's getting at is there's an administration of fullness of, of times. That is, there's a system of government. There's a system of organization that exists now. The fullness of times. Different from the Old Testament. Things are run differently. There's a different dispensation. There's a different administration of the kingdom of God, if you will, of the things of God. So these are errors. Now, many of you, you know this, but just to get our minds in the direction, the Bible says there's some big eras. There's the era of the Old Testament. There's the era of the New Testament. And sometimes we don't think of it as an era, but it actually is, because it has its own characteristics. There's the last and final era. Now, everybody has a big, you know, big different opinions about that, but they all agree that it's the last and final era. So these are the eras, those periods of time in which there are certain characteristics, certain principles in operation. In the Old Testament, it was promise and prophecy and type and shadow and symbol and imagery, other things. This is how God communicated. And all of those things were pointing forward beyond themselves. The Old Testament never pointed to itself as the ultimate. It's, it's, it's hard to... Sometimes we get a little confused to, and, and we don't remember that, you know, the Old Covenant and Moses, 
What did it promise you? If you, if you obeyed that covenant, what did, what did God promise you? You'd have a great crop. You'd have children round about your table. You would have joy because of the economy would be good. Economics, by the way, is huge. Um, did it ever promise eternal life? Did Moses ever tell you, hey, if you keep these laws, you'll get raised from the dead? No, it's, a, it's an era of promise. It's an era of anticipation. It is not an era of reality. It could only point forward to things to come. And then there's this era of the New Testament. Now, I couldn't fit, fit accomplishment on my page and get the words big enough so everybody can see in the back row. So accomplishment, the New Testament is a sense of accomplishment. This is that. It's a sense of fulfillment. This is that. It's a sense of reality. This is that. Here's the reality of the Holy Spirit. That was but the, but the promise of it. It's the era of substance. And by the way, these are all terms that will come from the New Testament. I'm not pulling these off of skyhooks or out of some, you know, find the synonyms for something. It's an era when there's going to be the manifestation of Christ. The Messiah has been promised for ages. Salvation has been promised from eternity. And now it's manifested in Jesus. Huge, gigantic change in history. And then there's that final era, all things new. That's what will characterize that era. So now Peter starts to open things up and he quotes Joel. We've got to remember that Joel is speaking from his own point of reference. Now there's discussion, perhaps debate, whether Joel spoke, prophesied, wrote. In around 800 B.C. with Jehoash, the king of Judah, or whether it was around 500 B.C. after the children of Israel are returning from captivity. That's a big spread, two different big circumstances. People muster their arguments one for the other. I used to think 800, but I read a commentary this past month and got convinced that 500's more likely. Joel probably wrote, spoke 500 B.C. But it doesn't matter whether it's 800 B.C. or 500 B.C. When Joel is speaking of the last days, and Peter quotes that how it starts out, in the last days, and Joel it really says in the latter days, but uh, there's the Septuagint and there's Peter. Peter kind of adjusts things to Joel's statements. And he says it's in the last days, it shall be. 800 B.C., 500 B.C., eh, doesn't matter. Interestingly, by the way, Joel really never brings an accusation of sin against the Jews. It says, hey, God is bringing this army of locusts and is judging you for sure in such a way that no one's ever remembered it happening, never even heard of it happening this way. One set of locusts comes and eats stuff, and then, the, then when, just when you think it's gone, another set of locusts comes and eats more, and then another, and then yet another, and just eats everything. And because Joel uses a lot of metaphors, you wonder, when he starts talking about armies, is he talking about the locusts? And it pretty much lends itself to that. But every now and then you kind of wonder and go, okay, is, that, is Joel talking about locusts or real armies? It was pretty much locusts. 
Joel in his prophecies talks about, hey, you need to get before the Lord. Here's these locusts. Here's this judgment of God. He doesn't really say repent of sin other than, you know, like specific sins like you might see in Amos or you might see in Isaiah. Hey, stop oppressing the fatherless and the widow. Stop lying. Stop murders. All those things may have been going on, but that's not what Joel brings up. He just says, hey, here are these judgments of God and what you need to do twice. He has two sections where he says you need to get before the Lord. You need to wail and weep. You need to fast to get before the Lord and pour out your heart before him and see if God doesn't send a blessing. But Peter takes this set of verses out of chapter 2. Joel says, in the last days. He's speaking of last days, which are clearly presented as a distant future. Joel is 800 or 500 B.C., and he's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. It's very much future to Joel. And he's speaking of things that shall certainly come to pass. In the last days, it shall be. Now, this concept of last days is actually spoken of a lot in the New Testament. Most people don't pick up on it. I didn't for years. We'll look at those, but we're going to kind of leave this exposition of the last days for probably another time. In the last days, though, it shall be. Well, we're in 2023, and we tend to think of last days as what? End times, right? Hey, I'm here in 2023, and the last days have got to be future for me. Because after all, wouldn't that be last days? And so we tend to think of the terminology of last days as being end times. And when we think that way, we are completely mistaken. Not just a little, we're mistaken a lot. Now, we're not saying there's not end times. We're not saying there's not a last day. There is a last day. There is a coming of Christ. There are things that happen just prior to that and surrounding it that are going to happen. And if you want to call those, you know, the end of days, you know, the, that's fine. Jesus calls it the consummation of the age. If you want to be biblical, which I suggest you be, you'll stay out of a lot of trouble if you just stay biblical and use biblical terminology. At the consummation of the age, which is the consistent terminology throughout the New Testament, things are going to happen. Jesus will return. Dead will be raised. Day of judgment will be brought in. Those are, those are clear things. But that's not what Peter means, nor Joel, by last days. And if this is kind of strange to you, just, just follow with me. There's a whole ton of scriptures on this, by the way. It's not like Steve's got some weird idea, some novel idea. <clears throat> now, I've had those, but... This is not one of them. Joel is in 800 B.C., and he's speaking of the last days of something future. And it's days. It's not an event. It's days. It's an era. It's a period of time. Sometime in the future, Joel's future, not necessarily our future, but Joel's future, last days are going to come. God declares it. It's going to happen. Prophecy is always at the bottom, a declaration from God. It is sure, it is certain, it is guaranteed by God himself. There's last days, they shall be, and there's things that are going to happen, and they will come to pass. 
Now, sometimes Satan comes and he troubles us and he says, you know, can you really trust God? It's like, okay, did God bring to pass all the things he promised of the first coming of Jesus? He's going to bring to pass the rest of them. Did God create the heavens and the earth? He's going to raise you from the dead and give you a new glorified body. Just look back on what God's done all through the Psalms when the psalmist is in trouble or the psalmist is like just fuzzy-brained or just depressed or all the things, all the, the emotional circumstances that we fall into, the psalmist is there. You love the psalms. They're there to talk to every aspect of humanity and every condition you'll be in. The psalmists are always looking back to what God has already done and we're gonna trust God because if he can do these, then he can do this. If he can do that, he can do this. And that's what it is. God says, in these last days, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on all flesh. There's going to be a new era of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It will be a permanent state of affairs. Human history will be changed forever. This day of Pentecost is so significant in the history of redemption. You just can't think, oh, it's when people got the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. There's you know, lots of groups that that's what they want to focus on. It's like you're missing it. You're missing the depth and richness of Acts chapter 2. Human history was never the same after Acts chapter 2. Something was ushered into human history that had never been there before. And even Jesus in the Gospels is in anticipating it. And he's saying, you know, of men born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. You may not want to go to dinner with him, but John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived in the history of all time. And he said, he that's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. What happens to make everybody in the kingdom of heaven the least some of you got saved and baptized when you're young. And you think, well, who am I? I'm just a little kid. You're greater than John the Baptist. Something has happened in human history for Jesus to say that. And there's other statements that Jesus makes that are similar. And that thing that has happened is the death of Messiah, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That changed everything. The Holy Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. They had just seen it. Jews were getting the Holy Spirit, yes. But they were speaking, they were from all nations. They were speaking the language of all nations. And as we looked at the book of Acts, and it's the reason I wanted to do that, to be reminded that the same thing that happens in Acts 2, other than it being the first and inaugural outpouring of the Spirit, happened in Acts chapter 10. And in chapter 11, Peter said, they got the same thing we got in Acts 2. So it's not just relegated to the Gentiles, or rather to the Jews. It's for the Gentiles too. All flesh was in the prophecy of Joel. So we're going to just point this out and we'll stop here. Whatever these last days are, when do they begin? According to Joel. Joel who talked about the last days. When did they begin? And you have to grasp this. According to Joel and according to Peter, the last days don't begin, you know, 40 or 80 years or how many years it is after Israel became a nation. It began when? You can say it. The day of... Well, wait a minute. If the day of Pentecost started the last days, how long have the last days been around? 
Anybody want to do that math? Actually, 1,993 years. You've got to subtract 30 from 2023. <clears throat> Last days have been around. They've been around for a long time. And when you look in the Old Testament, you see the glory of these last days, the power of these last days, the just amazing manifestation of God in these last days. It is, the, it is going to usher in the final era of the consummation of the age. And my brothers and sisters, when you sit around with your own pity party saying, well, I'm not much, and you know, God just doesn't care about me, and this and that and the other, What time in human history do you live? The last days. Ask God to fill your soul with the power of that, with the reality of that. Jesus is at the right hand of God. He's been ruling and reigning for 1,997 years. I'll round up to 2,000. And you're part of it. When you go and preach the gospel door to door or any other way you do it. This isn't just, you know, an idea. Hey, there's God and there's Jesus and there's salvation. In Acts chapter 17, Paul actually uses this structure of the history of redemption. And he says, you know, the times of ignorance, you, you guys that had this, this, in Athens, you had this idol to an unknown God, and he's the one I'm declaring to you. Again, preaching his declaration not debate, when people use that as an apologetic passage so we can, I'm like, no. It's a preaching passage. Paul didn't debate or dicker back and forth with these guys at Athens. He declared the unknown God to them. And this unknown God, this God you don't know, well, there's been a times of ignorance, there's been the past, you Athenians, when you didn't know this God, but, up, but now there's a point in history where God now, and there's, it's a very clear now, now commands all men everywhere to repent. When you go to somebody's doorstep, you go with the commandment of God himself that the last days are here. This is an eschatological gospel. You proclaim God commands all men everywhere. Repent. Turn to God. And you remind them that there is a day the last days will some, someday come to an end. And when it comes to an end, there will be a judgment. So I suggest, you know, don't invite Peter to any of your pity parties because all he's going to do is remind you, wait a minute, you live in the last days. <coughs> Have faith. Trust God. Jesus is at the right hand of God. You have a privilege that even the prophets of old did not have. You're greater than John the Baptist. So next week, Lord willing, we'll continue with what is Joel talking about. What are these last days? We see where they begin. But what are they about? And where do they end? Lovely Father, we come to your throne and we're just uh, seeing your word. You brought this to pass. You promised Eve that you would bring someone who would undo the works of the devil. That from her human seed down the line, someone would come and undo what she and her husband had just gotten themselves into 
and the whole human race with them. Lord, you further that promise through generations to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And you said that there's a time coming in which all nations will be blessed. And Lord, all through that Old Testament, whether it's having lambs being physical lambs, earthly lambs being put to death on an altar as an atonement year by year, whether it was a priesthood dressed up in specified garments, Lord, whether it's the imagery of Isaiah or Jeremiah talking about a new covenant, writing laws that were once on stones, now on the heart. Lord, all these places in your word talked about a coming era of human history. And Joel puts the stamp on it. They're the last days. Lord, let our minds, first of all, be, be affected by this. There's so much stuff swirling around in the world. Satan's just swirling any kind of confusion he can. Let us ground our minds right here that the last days, according to Joel and Peter, began 2,000 years ago, began with the, the, the inaugural reign of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that initiated the last days. And for 2,000 years of Christ's power, the gospel has gone into all nations Jesus from heaven sovereignly opening doors. All the resistance to the gospel sovereignly overcoming them so that you could save your people from their sin. Lord, let this last days come upon us. Let us adjust our thinking. But more, Lord Jesus, show us the glory of it. Show us the glory that every one of us here is living in the last days. What does that mean? What does that mean for our own personal lives? What does that mean for a prayer meeting? What does that mean when we talk to someone at the supermarket or talk to a friend or a family member about you? What does that mean when we preach? What does that mean when we go door to door? What does that mean if we go downtown to, to talk to people about you? Lord, let us always be invested with this reality. Let it always be in our minds because you gave it to us. You, you, you have presented these things so that we would have them as the foundation of our lives, of our faith, of our hope, of our confidence. But Lord, only your Holy Spirit can reveal them with power. And we just pray you do that over these next few weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.